0: And now hear the lesson of the day from Psalm 78, the first eight verses. A contemplation of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them. The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not... Forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray together. Father, speak to us now through your word. We thank you for the truth and wisdom that You have given to us in Your Scriptures, that You inspired by Your Holy Spirit, that You have preserved down through the ages. Father, this Word is living and active, a double-edged sword, piercing and cutting apart soul and spirit. May Your Word do its work on us today, convicting us, comforting us, transforming us, calling us to faithfulness, enabling us to live lives that bring You glory, that honor You in this world. Father, we pray this. the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. How do the generations relate to each other? That's uh, maybe not a a question that we ask in just that way very often, but I think it's actually a question uh, that vexes us quite a bit and is right at the heart of so many of the dilemmas and uh, issues that our culture faces. How do the generations relate to each other? We have several generations represented in this room. Children, parents, grandparents. I don't know that we have any great-grandparents here just yet, but uh, I'm sure that we will at some point. How do these generations relate to one another? You know, there's a real tendency to sharply distinguish and even separate the generations from one another, to pit the generations against one another. And you can kind of see this in how we develop certain names for different generations. So for example, you've got the Baby Boomers, that would be my parents. You've got Gen X, that's my generation. You've got the Millennials, and now Gen Z, or iGen, or the Zoom generation. I've heard it called different things, but that would be the, the, the youngest generation. Sociologists study these things, they study these groups, these different generations, and they point out how each generation tends to have its own characteristics and culture, its own vocabulary and music. You've probably seen those things online where you can answer a set of questions and they'll tell you what year you were born in. And they can usually get it pretty close because generations have certain defining certain characteristics, there's a culture that each generation seems to have. Now, a lot of this is driven, these differences between the generations, a lot of this is driven by what we call pop culture, popular culture. A lot of this is the fruit of pop culture. Pop culture is, for the most part, a very modern phenomenon. This whole idea where you have culture that's continually changing and each generation has its own culture. It's very market-driven. Pop culture by design is disposable. Pop culture is supposed to become obsolete. Uh, If if they created songs that really had lasting beauty and value, you might listen to that one so much you wouldn't buy the next song. So it's got to have a kind of built-in obsolescence to it. Modern songs are not designed to stand the test of time the way, say, Handel's Messiah is. I don't think they're going to be listening to very much of our pop music today, 500 years from now, the way they'll still be playing and listening to Handel's Messiah. Pop culture really is all about fads and trends and changing styles. What drives a great deal of this, of course, is making money. But one implication is that pop culture tends to drive a wedge between the generations. What are the odds that a father and son will like the same music? It's not, it, it does happen, certainly. But a lot of times it doesn't happen. Uh, The odds actually are pretty low in today's world that a father and son will enjoy the same music. In the past, that would have been unheard of. Everybody would have listened to or played or or sung the same music. Uh, I've heard of moms who dutifully check their teenagers' cell phones, but who cannot understand their kids' text because it's like they're written in practically a different language with all these abbreviations and so forth. It just can't be understood by the older folks. Uh, Our culture tends to prize youth, of course, and so each new generation of young people tends to have their own culture, and they want to break free and do their own thing. That's really what youth culture means. It's rejecting your parents' ways and beliefs, and pop culture tends to normalize this kind of youth culture. So instead of honoring the older generation, you mock them. And it's kind of like then every generation has to start from scratch casting off the traditions and the wisdom of the past. Every generation starts from scratch. This casting off of tradition, of course, is very dangerous. Jordan Peterson says, the careless demolition of tradition invites the emergence of chaos. And that really is true. And I think in some ways that's what pop culture gets us. When a new generation rejects the accumulated wisdom of past generations, things tend to fall apart. And that's very much the case in our world today. But what happens when the older generation doesn't really have any wisdom to pass on to the younger generation in the first place? Then what? (laughs) It doesn't so much matter if they cast off a tradition that really doesn't have much wisdom or value in it anyway. Then what? This is what pop culture has done to us. So think about this. On the one hand, our culture pits the generations against one another. We can name these generations. We can talk about their specific features. You know, the young people say, don't trust anyone over 30. The older people say, what's wrong with kids today? You know, how's the world going to continue to exist when kids like this grow up and take charge of things? The generations are cut off from one another. They're sometimes even at war with one another. There's this wedge that's been driven between the generations. But there's something else very interesting going on. On the other hand, there is a movement going on today that links the generations ever so tightly. But it does so in a way that is incredibly destructive. Many people today, especially those who advocate for what is called critical theory or critical race theory, teach that you can be guilty for the sins of your ancestors, that the generations are so tightly bound together that you can be guilty today for things your ancestors did in the distant past and the remote past. You've probably heard about critical theory. It's gotten all kinds of attention. There have been uh, public school board meetings that have been dominated with discussions of whether or not critical race theory should be taught in our schools. I'm not gonna go into all of it. If you're interested in it, I could point you to some really good things to read. I just wanna deal with this one aspect of it, how it relates to generations. Critical race theory teaches guilt can be transferred from one generation to another. The sins of the fathers can and must be visited on the sons. At least the sins of some fathers must be visited on their sons. And that is the case even if the sons do not commit those same sins. In fact, even if they reject those sins of their fathers, the living can be punished for the sins of the dead. And so the most obvious example of this Uh, what critical race theorists really push and what has become so controversial. They claim that all white people in America today bear the sins of their ancestors. Guilt is hereditary. And so past sins, and I want to stress this, these really were sins. There's no defending this. There's no point in trying to to whitewash our nation's history. These really are sins. But those past sins of race-based slavery and racial segregation that were committed by Previous generations, the guilt of those sins now belongs to current generations. Even if current generations renounce those sins from the past, they they, they really uh, they really do belong to us. The guilt of those things really belongs to people living today. Things done in the past, and, and many race, critical race theorists will try to say, "Well, see, this is biblical. The Bible teaches a, a doctrine of corporate." guilt That's what original sin is all about. Adam's sin is reckoned to his descendants. Adam falls into sin and the whole human race being contained in him falls in his fall. And so because of Adam, when we come into this world, we're already guilty of his sin. Now that is true, that teaching on original sin. But here's the thing. Adam was a federal head, or a covenant head, we might say. He was the covenant head of the whole human race. The whole human race really was summed up in him. And so when he fell in the garden, we did all fall in him. It's like he polluted the river, and so we all polluted the river in him. But what's interesting about that is certainly not all of Adam's sins. Adam sinned after that sin in the garden. He continued to sin in all kinds of ways. Scripture makes it clear, I think, that only that one act, that one representative act of sin was reckoned to his ancestors who were in union with him. Only his original sin of failing his probationary test in the garden uh, was reckoned to his descendants, and Adam had a rather unique position as the first man, as the, uh, as the firstborn over all creation. There's only one other man in all of history who has stood as an analogous federal head with the destiny of others tied up in his actions, and that is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two men in history who have absolutely determined the destinies of those who are connected with them, and that's Adam and Jesus. It's just not true in any other case. They're utterly unique. Romans 5 makes this point, how unique Adam and Jesus are as federal heads in this way. So, for example, white Americans didn't have a federal head who represented them and acted on their behalf in in our past history. It just doesn't work. Indeed, I would say that the critical race theory seems to ignore other texts of Scripture that stress personal accountability and that teach something very different in terms of corporate responsibility for sin. I'm thinking of passages like Ezekiel 18, which asks the question, the very question that critical race theorists are posing, should the son suffer for the iniquity of his father? And in Ezekiel 18 the prophet answers, not if he does not do likewise, not if he does not repeat the sins of his father. Ezekiel 18 says he shall not die for his father's iniquity. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Romans 14.12 says each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You will be judged according to your own works, not according to somebody else's works, not according to those works done by others, even relatives. You will have to give an account for your own life, your own works, but not the works of anyone else. If you think about that, that really should be obvious, the, the, the justice of it. Suppose a father is a drunkard or is abusive. Does it sound like justice to say that his kids are guilty of those sins of being a drunkard or being abusive, even if they do not commit themse- those sins themselves, even if they reject those sins themselves? In fact, if you think about it, that drunkard and abusive father, a lot of his sins are probably being inflicted on his kids. So then to turn around and say, I knew kids, not only did you have to suffer under a father who was a drunkard and who was abusive, but you know what? Your father committed those sins, so you're guilty of those sins. That abuse your father committed against you, you're guilty of that sin yourself because he was your father. You can see how that makes no sense at all. That clearly is unjust. How can you punish kids for a sin they didn't commit that they've already suffered for because their father committed it against them? It just makes no sense. Whenever hereditary guilt has been practiced in a culture, it has always led to blood feuds. It always leads to violence because it makes peace and reconciliation impossible. Because you know what? The past cannot be changed. The past is what it is. It cannot be changed. It can be forgiven, but it cannot be changed. What has been done has been done. If the sins of past generations are our sins, not because we're repeating them in our own lives, that would be different. And there are many places in Scripture where you see sons walking in the same sins as their father, and and they're, they're obviously condemned for that. They're doing the same things their fathers did. But think about this. If the sins of past generations become our sins, not because we're repeating them in our own lives, but simply because of when and where we were born, there is no hope. There is no way forward. In fact, it's hard to see how this wouldn't have implicated Jesus himself in sin. One of the things we, we have to teach is that Jesus was sinless. Uh, he had to live a sinless life in order to be our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. But if you really press this doctrine of corporate guilt, of, of, uh, of sin being hereditary, it's hard to see how Jesus would escape it. And this is what people are so concerned about with critical race theory and why critical race theory always seems to end in greater social division and alienation. It does not bring the peace it promises. Now, thankfully, there is a better way. There is a better way of thinking about how the generations relate to one another. And we find it in Psalm 78. Against the pop culture tendency to pit generations against one another, Psalm 78 shows us the generations really are linked. The generations really are connected to one another. They are like links in a chain or like chapters in an unfolding story. Each generation is connected to the one before it. Each generation is connected to the one coming after it. And so each generation has a set of obligations to the previous generation and to the next generation. We're going to see what some of those obligations are momentarily. So against the view of pop culture, against this view of the sociologist that pits the generations against one another, we have to say, no, the generations really are linked. No generation really starts from scratch in the way that they think. There really is a connection, a bond between the generations. But against the view of critical race theory that teaches one generation can be held responsible for the sins of a previous generation, Psalm 78 shows us that no matter how badly our fathers and grandfathers may have failed as they did in Israel's history, as recounted in this psalm, God's purposes do not fail. His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new with every generation. And so there is always hope. We are not doomed because of past generations' sin. Nor are we doomed to repeat the sins of past generations ourselves. We don't bear guilt for that, nor are we doomed to repeat it. God does allow, in a certain way, every generation to make a fresh start, to succeed where others in the past have failed. To live righteously where previous generations fell into sin. And that is our hope. That's the hope described here in Psalm 78. Uh, Our hope uh, is here because God remains faithful to his covenant promises. Even when there is an unfaithful generation, even when there's a long series of unfaithful generations, God's covenant promises endure. And so there is always hope. Now, let me make a qualification here. When you have a generation that's been in sin or or, or a series of generations that have been, been in sin, to be sure, we may still have to deal with the effects of the sins our ancestors committed. But that's different than saying we bear the guilt for the sins they committed. Effects and guilt can be distinguished. The generational effects of sin are very different from generational guilt for past sin. The effects certainly have to be dealt with. But we don't have to see ourselves as guilty for things people have done in our family tree in the past. Psalm 78 reminds us, not, and this, this is really one of the keys here. Psalm 78 reminds us not only does sin have generational effects, but righteousness has generational effects as well. If one generation poisons the river of history, a righteous generation can come along and filter the toxins out of the water. And that's really what Psalm 78 is a call to do. Think about this. This this is what Psalm 78 is showing us. If you're unfaithful today, you are going to make it far more difficult for future generations, your kids, grandkids, your great-grandkids. If you are unfaithful today, you're making it far more difficult for them to be faithful. But if you are faithful today, you are paving the way. You're making it easier and much more likely that your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids will be faithful as well. And that's really what Psalm 78 teaches. Psalm 78 is all about covenant. Psalm 78 is all about legacy. Your legacy matters. Psalm 78 teaches this. Everyone inherits a legacy and every one of us leaves a legacy. And these legacies do not determine what we do or what our children do. But they are powerful shaping forces. Psalm 78 is really interesting. We only read the first eight verses. It's actually a really long psalm. In fact, it's the second longest psalm in the entire Psalter. Only Psalm 119 is longer. So it's long. I didn't read all of that for you, but I can summarize it for you. It tells the story of Israel, at least a huge chunk of Israel's history. It really surveys the history of Israel from Moses to David. That's really what it... Looks at. But it's really interesting the way it tells this story. The way it tells the story really highlights Israel's failing from generation to generation. How it seemed like Israel could never get it right. Generation after generation after generation fails. The generation in the wilderness that came out of Egypt in the exodus, that generation failed. The, ge- the generation that conquered the land, that generation failed. in the-, the judges, they were failure after failure after failure, one generation after another, and then it- beyond. It-, it, just, it records the story of failure. These generations failed. But it also records God's act of kindness to his people. God's great acts of kindness to his people even in the midst of their failure. Things like God dividing the Red Sea in the Exodus or sending the plagues or raining down manna when they were working their way through the wilderness or how he gave the promised land into their hand or how he defeated the Philistines after they had captured the Ark of the Covenant. God's great acts of kindness on behalf of his people are recorded here as well. So what this psalm is doing If you look at the whole of it, the way it tells the history, the way it tells the story, this psalm shows how God's people were unfaithful. God was kind to His people. And yet despite those kindnesses, the people still rebelled again and again from one generation to the next. They would turn back to God, then they would forget God, and they would grieve Him by falling into sin. So what does this overview of Israel's history show? Generation after generation failed. Generation after generation was unfaithful. And yet God remained faithful. Psalm 78 shows how rotten the family tree of Israel has been. How much bad fruit has been born there over the centuries. But nowhere does the psalmist, this, this is an interesting point and important point to keep in mind. Nowhere does the psalmist suggest, so as, he, as he's writing his contemporaries, nowhere does he suggest his generation bears responsibility for those past failings. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, your ancestors all failed, and now that guilt is is, is yours. Instead, this is what he does, and this is what's really important. He tells the story of those past generations that were unfaithful, that they might serve as a warning of what not to do. Precisely because he wants his generation to make a different set of choices. He piles up generation after generation after generation, all these dead bodies across Israel's history, all this unfaithfulness and idolatry, and he says, Do you see what they did, generation from generation? Don't be like that. Every one of these generations is a warning to you. The past serves as a warning precisely because we can do something different. That's what Asaph is saying to his contemporaries. Let the past serve as a warning because we have the opportunity to do something different. Yes, there may be effects of past sin we're going to have to deal with, but you're not guilty of those sins unless you repeat them yourself. And so in Psalm 78, Asaph uses the past not to shame the Israelites, but to warn them. And, of course, we ought to do the same with the past in our own. day. I'll give you an example of this. Suppose you come from a long line of family brokenness. There's been a lot of adultery, divorce, and abuse in your family history. The first thing you need to know is that you're not guilty of any sins you didn't personally commit. Now, you're going to have to deal with the effects of those sins, quite obviously. You have to deal with the effects of those sins. But the guilt is not yours. The effects, yes, the guilt, No. But here's the thing, a lot of people look at their family history and they see that brokenness, that adultery, that divorce, that abuse, and they think, oh no, I am doomed to walk down the same path. Dad was an adulterer, mom was a drunkard, how do I know I won't do the same? And they, they feel like they are doomed to go down the same path. Psalm 78 would say, no, you should not assume you're going to inevitably fall into the same sins. You don't have to be a slave to the sins of your ancestors. You don't have to because God is kind. You know, I've known some people who said, you know what, I just, I don't even want to get married and have a family because my parents got divorced or my parents fought all the time. Home life was unhappy. And so They just can't imagine anything outside of that outside of what previous generations have done, the sin, the brokenness. Psalm 78 says to us, it does not have to be that way. Psalm 78 shows us God's grace can intervene in these situations. Indeed, God's grace can contravene the brokenness of the past. God can purify the toxins that have been injected into that river, that stream of generations as it flows along. And no matter how long the series of unfaithful generations has been, Psalm 78 shows us God can raise up a faithful generation. He can break that cycle of brokenness and rebellion and idolatry.
1: Indeed, in Psalm 78, the ultimate
0: breakthrough happens with David towards the very end of The psalm, you come to the very end of the psalm and Asaph says that God chose his servant David and took him from the sheepfolds and put him on the throne to shepherd his people. So God took David from shepherding sheep and made him shepherd of Israel, shepherd of the people. And with an upright heart, Asaph tells us, David shepherded them and he guided them with his skillful hand. David was the break. David was the great breakthrough. David breaks the cycle of rebellion. You finally have a faithful covenant leader, a faithful uh, covenant representative in Israel. This pattern of covenant breaking, at least momentarily, is interrupted with David. Now we know after David, things went back to being just as bad, or maybe in some cases even worse. But Asaph here picks out David to say, look, God can break this cycle, this pattern of generational sin. It's like generations in Israel were just passing on unbelief and rebellion and idolatry from one generation to the next, and then God raised up David. And there was this big breakthrough. David's generation, of course, is the high point in Israel's history and proof that the nation does not have to wallow in sin and idolatry. But, of course, we know, again, as I said, David did not produce lasting faithfulness in Israel. But that's because David was not the final gift God would give to his people. David was a type and a shadow pointing to a greater David. David and his kingdom pointed ahead to a greater David with an even greater kingdom. The ultimate and lasting breakthrough happens with the coming of Jesus. David is used as the model, as as the template, as the pointer. And David shows us in a shadow what Jesus will come and do in reality. So what does Jesus do when he comes into history? Well, all kinds of things that David could not. Jesus brings forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness. Everlasting forgiveness. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has made atonement for our sin. He's made a covering for our sin. Jesus brings redemption. He's made the ransom payment. He's set us free from slavery to sin and Satan and death. He's fought our battles on our behalf, defeating the world, the flesh, and the devil. The power found in Jesus is greater than the power of sin. The power of Jesus in your life means you are freed to live faithfully even if your ancestors did not. For those of us growing up in the Bible Belt, that may not seem as radical, as it would to other people. But there are many people throughout history for whom this has been absolutely earth-shattering and revolutionary. You mean I don't have to walk in the way of my fathers? They were idolaters. You're saying I can do something different? They worshiped these gods over here, bloodthirsty gods. You're saying I, I, I can actually go and worship a different kind of God, a loving God, a kind God, a God who actually offered his, who doesn't demand sacrifice from us, but who actually made a sacrifice on our behalf to save us from our sins? I can do that. I I can change loyalties. I don't have to walk in the same path. Psalm 78 shows us you don't. You're not a slave to the sins of past generations. Indeed, Psalm 78 shows us even more. Not only can David, not only can Jesus break generational cycles and patterns of sin, He enables us to establish new cycles and patterns of righteousness. So whereas in Israel's history, you see it's almost like this unbroken line. One generation passing on its unbelief to the next. Psalm 78 shows us there's another way. You can pass the faith on like a baton. Going from one runner to the next. You can pass the faith on from one generation to the next. Sinful legacies can be broken. Righteous legacies can be established. Look again at these opening verses in this psalm. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. Here the word parable means something like a riddle. A riddle-like saying that requires wisdom and reflection to understand. Jesus spoke in parables in Matthew 13 to fulfill this. When Jesus starts teaching in parables... Matthew in his gospel quotes this, Jesus is the fulfillment of Asaph, he's the new and greater Asaph, who's speaking of parables and riddles. And just as Asaph, for Asaph the whole history of Israel is a kind of riddle or a parable, a dark saying, so the parables of Jesus are riddles about the history of Israel. They're dark sayings, They're, they're mysteries that have to be puzzled out in order to really understand what Jesus is talking about. The whole history of Israel is a kind of parable, a kind of riddle. But he's going to unfold it for us. Verse 4, he says, we will not hide these things from our children. We'll unfold the riddle. We'll break the riddle open for our children. And here he's talking about what we do for our children. How do we pass on a legacy of righteousness? Well, in verse 4, he he goes on to tell us, he says, we will declare, so this has been a a parable, a dark saying, but now we will openly declare to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. And what has God done? What does it mean to declare the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders he has done? Verse 5 He has established a testimony in Judah and a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now here, fathers are specifically instructed to teach their children the word of God. The testimony that God has established, the law God has given to his people. Fathers are specifically commanded to do this. Mothers are obviously supposed to teach, too. We find that in other places in Scripture. The fifth commandment not only says to honor your father, but to also honor your mother. That was quite different from what other ancient cultures uh, taught. Uh, In in the book of Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs, not only the wisdom of the father that the young man is to listen to, it's also the Torah or the law of his mother that he is to listen to. So mothers obviously teach As well, they have that responsibility too. But fathers are addressed here for a reason. Fathers are addressed here and in other passages in Scripture, like in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says to fathers, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers are singled out because the father is the head of his household, and he is responsible for the household that bears his name. That does not mean he can actually control everything that the rest of the members of his household do. Obviously not does not have that kind of control. But it does mean he has responsibility for his household and he has authority over his household. In Scripture, those two always go together. The authority and the responsibility. He is responsible precisely because he has authority. And he has authority so he can fulfill his responsibilities. The man is responsible for the household that bears his name. And so a dad needs to be able to say with Joshua, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. In Genesis 18, we find that God chose Abraham precisely so he might direct his whole household in the ways of righteousness and faithfulness before God. So fathers, this is a task assigned to you to declare the wonderful works of God to your children, to tell your children the story of what God has done. Fathers need to do this at home, certainly. Think of Deuteronomy 6. Where Moses says parents are to diligently teach their children his words, uh, and it says that uh, they're to uh, teach these children, uh, teach their children God's words, when and talk of them when sitting at home, when walking along the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, so that the words of God are a sign on your hand to govern what you do and like frontlets between your eyes to govern how you see and interpret the world. And it's like they're posted on the doorframe of your house to govern your family life. And they are on your city gates to govern your public or social or political life as well. The Word of God is to be everywhere at all times. We're to raise our kids up in an environment that is simply soaked with and saturated with the Word of God. That's a parental responsibility. That's something you obviously do at home and as you're out and about uh, with your kids. But I would also argue one of the best ways to make sure that the story of God's great deeds is proclaimed to your children is to bring them to church, to bring them to the place where they can sit under the public ministry of God's Word. And I would say this is why it's so important to train your kids to participate in the liturgy in age-appropriate ways as they are growing up. Parents understand, you parents with little ones understand, training your children to worship is not a distraction from worship, it is an act of worship. Training your little ones to worship is not a distraction from worship, it's one of the ways you worship God when we are gathered. Hear that parents, because I know this is hard work and I know you need encouragement in it training your kids to worship is itself worship training your kids to worship is itself an act of worship and this is how it's been for the whole history of god's people again and again when you see descriptions of the congregation when god's people are summoned to gather it always includes the kids and so take comfort parents of little ones in knowing that generation after generation after generation of God's people have dealt with all the same problems and issues and struggles you're dealing with right this very moment. In Deuteronomy 16, it uh, says when God's people are to gather, to gather for the great worship feast uh, at the tabernacle, it says you shall rejoice before the Lord, you and your son and your daughter. Bring, you know, God says come to church and bring the kids with you. Come to my house for a feast and don't forget the kids. In Joel chapter 2, here's more of a gathering to lament rather than to rejoice. But in Joel chapter 2, it says to gather the people for a worship assembly, gather the people, the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. When God wants his people to come together, that includes the children, even the little ones. And then think about Jesus. Jesus carries this out as well. Jesus says, let the little children come, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And Jesus took those little children in his arms, even infants it tells us in Luke's gospel, and he blessed them. One of the best ways to get Jesus to bless your children today is to bring them to the place where Jesus has promised to be. If you want Jesus to bless your children today, what do you do? You have to go to the place where Jesus has promised to be present said this in Sunday school. I'll say it again here. It's like, it's like God has said to us, I've got gifts I want to give to you and I am delivering those gifts to 7160 Cahaba Valley Road every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Show up and get my gifts. Show up and receive my gifts. And God's got gifts for the kids too. They get gifts as well. See here in church you and your children are going to hear of the Lord's wondrous deeds and of course God's greatest deed of all is the gospel God's great work of redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he died for our sins and rose again triumphantly over de- defeating death breaking its curse they're going to hear the story of how he ushered in the promised kingdom foretold by the prophets that's the story we all need to hear again and again and again And so Psalm 78 is showing us the story of the kingdom. Yes, it belongs to us, but the story of the kingdom belongs to our children, and our children belong to the story as well. This story of what God has done is their story. It's for them, and they're included in it. God has made promises to believing parents. We talked about those promises in connection with baptism this morning. Those promises provide the whole framework for the task of mothering and fathering. God's covenant is not just with individuals. It is with families as well. And so we can ask, we have to ask, what does it mean to be a covenant family, a covenant household? One implication is that our children are Christian children. Not by nature. Flesh can only give rise to flesh, flesh only gives birth to flesh. But our children are Christian parents, our our children are Christian children because of God's grace, because of God's gracious covenant promise. Through Isaiah the prophet. God promised to put his spirit upon our children, and we trust that's exactly what he has done. And so now we are to raise our children up accordingly. You're to raise your children up as Christians, impressing upon them this Christian identity, this covenantal identity, from the very beginning of their lives. So even as they learn that they're a member of your family, they learn they're a member of God's family as well. And they grow up, and you know, probably most of us, unless we have very unusual circumstances, we can't remember when we first met our earthly father. They should grow up, Lord willing, not remembering a time when they were introduced to their heavenly father as either, either, because he has always, already been there. He's always been a part of their life. They grow up knowing you as their dad. They grow up knowing the heavenly father as well. So what does this mean? Well, obviously it includes baptizing them and then also teaching them all that God has commanded. This means Christian parenting is really not evangelism. It is discipleship. You can think of it this way. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it here again. I think it's a good one. You know, football season has just started. You know, football season means in the deep south you know we all have our loyalties to our favorite team and one thing I've noticed and I know you've seen this too but one thing I've noticed is that parents do not hesitate to impose their loyalties on their kids from the earliest of ages the child's born and, and they'll put that baby in an Auburn onesie or an Alabama onesie as it's coming home from the hospital <laughs> because the training has already started They're already inculcating a loyalty. And they will teach that child the cheers and the fight song and the history of the program and who our great rivals are. That's analogous to covenantal parenting. What do we do in covenantal parenting? We clothe our kids in Christ through the waters of baptism. We teach them the rituals of our faith. We teach them our fight songs, especially the Psalms. We teach them the whole history of the church, the, the, the great achievements of God's church through history. And we teach them who our rival is, who they're to hate, Satan, the evil one. We teach them all these things. What parents in the deep south don't do is raise the child in a, you could say, football neutral way. I don't hear parents in the south say a whole lot, you know, we're just going to let him grow up and make up his own mind about who to pull for. No, if he switches loyalties to another school, that's like apostasy. You might get disinherited for that. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit, or maybe I'm exposing the fact that we've actually got an alternate religion in our culture that we need to be well aware of. But I actually do think the way we inculturate our kids in a football loyalty is analogous to what parents do in raising covenant children. We are inculturating them into the life of the kingdom. We're inculcating a kingdom loyalty and lifestyle. Now, of course, the difference between training your kids to pull for a football team and training your kids to understand their place in God's kingdom. The difference, of course, is the stakes could not be compared. The stakes are infinitely higher when it comes to raising covenant children and training them in covenant loyalty. As parents, we have to know that as we are doing this work, as we are seeking to inculturate our kids into the kingdom, the Spirit is working with us. And the Spirit is working through our works to work in the hearts of our children. And so as you raise your children up in the covenant and in the kingdom by faith, resting in God's covenant promises, what happens? What's the result of this? Well, uh, the generations come to be linked, but the generations come to be linked by faith and by the covenant. See, as, as, as Asaph tells the story of Israel's history, the generations were linked, but they were linked mainly by their rebellion against God. But at the beginning of the psalm, he shows us there's another way the generations can be linked. They can be linked by faith and by a love for God. The generations can be linked together by their trust in the wondrous deeds of the Lord and by finding their place in this unfolding story of redemption. The generations come to be linked by a love for God and a love for God's law. They're bound together by God's transgenerational covenant promises. They're bound together by God's transgenerational grace. And so you know what happens? Verses 5 and 6, there's some debate about exactly how many generations are in view. But it seems to me what he's doing in verses 5 and 6 is linking together multiple generations. He's going to tell this story of generation after generation of failure. But he shows us at the very beginning of the psalm how you can have a a story of generation after generation of righteousness and faithfulness. What does he say in verses 5 and 6? He commanded our fathers to teach their children... That the next generation might know them. That is the children not yet born. So we've gone from fathers to children. Now the children not yet born. That would be the grandchildren. That those children would arise and tell their children. So now we're out to the great grandchildren. These generations are being tied to one another in faith. And that really is the point of all of this. See, what is he saying? Each successive generation... Each successive generation is setting their hope in God. That's what he goes on to say in verse 7. Each successive generation sets their hope in God and, and does not forget the works of God, but rather keeps His commandments so they are not like their ancestors who were a stubborn and rebellious generation. See, this is what Psalm 78 is really about. It is describing how you can reverse the downward spiral of history. That downward spiral that was evident for such a long stretch of Israel's history How do you reverse that? Well, Psalm 78 tells us it's in large measure through faithful parenting, through the covenant nurture of the next generation who will then do the same for the next generation and then that generation will do the same for the next generation and on it will go. That's what Psalm 78 envisions. And so this then would be the point. Just as the effects of sin can reverberate down through the generations, so the effects of righteousness can reverberate down through the generations as well. And I would say even more powerfully. Just as sin can reverberate down through the generations, righteousness can as well. So the question then is what kind of legacy do you want to leave? If you start to build a righteous legacy. I know many of you, are come, you come out of Christian families. But some of you don't. Some of you are continuing on. You're a link in this chain. Psalm 78 describes. Some of you are just getting started in this. But understand. This is what's at stake. This is how you build Christendom. This is how you build a Christian civilization. It can only happen through multi-generational faithfulness. As we sort of store up righteous capital. Building from one generation to the next. And you can see too how this creates synergy between the Christian church and the Christian family. The mission of the church to baptize and disciple the nations and the mission of the family to baptize and disciple children. You can see how how they dovetail together together perfectly. And so, let us and our children and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren Not be like our fathers of old in ancient Israel who were unfaithful to God, who had a stubborn and rebellious spirit. Rather, let us set our hope in God and not forget his great works from one generation to the next. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.